Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy provides an invaluable lesson for the business community. In an alien planet far away, they created a supercomputer and asked for the answer to the universe, life, and everything. The supercomputer took 75,000 generations and came up with the answer. It was 42. When they asked, well, what, what's the question? The supercomputer said, it'll take a few thousand years for me to come up with the question. Often the questions we ask determine the quality of our life. So I'm beyond excited to speak today with Terence about the questions that L&D should be asking leaders. But before we do, I'd love, Terence, if you could share your story and your interview at uh, Emerson, the company you're with now, uh, to lay the foundation for our discussion. Yeah, yeah, glad to have it. In fact, it was 10 years ago this week that uh, mm-hmm. I met with Emerson's executives. I was not in an active search at the time, but uh, to leave the practice that I had built, there were certain things I was looking for, and Emerson was able to check off all three. So I uh, actually went to St. Louis, met with some of the top executives there, and had fascinating conversations. And I think the value I brought was not by the answers I gave, but by the questions that I asked them. Because multiple times during the interview, the questions I asked elicited the response, you know, that's a really great question. Uh, The most pivotal part of the whole interview process is when the man who was, I would end up reporting to me, opened up the portfolio and said, look at the breadth of our offerings, look at our portfolio, look at how many people attended our workshops last year. Take a look at how many people actually hit the learning management system and and looked at an e-learning course. Isn't that impressive? And I said, yeah, this is really impressive. But all this tells me is what's been consumed, what's been digested. And I knew that I struck a nerve when I saw the reaction on his face because consumption of learning is one thing. Digestion is something entirely different. And learning and development professionals will not bring value to an organization simply by measuring rumps in the room. It's ultimately measured by what's been put to work when people are back at work. That's why we move from consumption to digestion. And that's the important conversation to be had. I knew when I struck that nerve, I could carry that same conversation with all the other executives I met with. And shortly after that, maybe two days later, the offer came. Amazing. And, and Terrence, what is the size of the impact that you have within Emerson? If you could speak to maybe the number of employees, number of business units, just so that we understand the scope with which you, you, you ask some of the questions that you're asking. Yeah, that's a great question. Having been at Emerson 10 years, just when I think I've connected the dots, new dots show up, some dots go away, some dots get bigger and renamed. So there's a lot of complexities, but it's a multinational company. We have employees that live and work in 140 countries, about 90,000 employees right now across two major platforms, which comprise around 60 different business entities. So my role is truly global in in scope, and I am responsible for the instructional components of leadership development on an enterprise-wide scale. So things like technical skills and selling skills are still the purview of our business units because the technical requirements are different from business to business. Our go-to-market strategies are different as well, but how you manage and lead is consistent no matter where in the world we are. So that's why it's centralized under the operation that I have the opportunity to lead. Wonderful. And, and Terrence, what I'd like to do before we talk about the future, 
of people initiatives i'd like to reflect on, on maybe the past a bit and and this this turning point some talk about an era of catalog building check the boxes are over i like how you reframe the conversation from consumption to digestion but maybe if you could let's talk about the learning objectives versus the focus on business outcomes how where would you draw the line between the old way of thinking and the new yeah uh, thanks for asking i love that question Historically, learning and development professionals, even today, still talk in languages completely meaningless to our executives. We talk about learning objectives when our executives, the business that we support, want to talk about business outcomes. For example, anytime you've read an advertisement for a workshop, it says, at the end of this course, you will be able to. And really, that doesn't tell me a whole lot. If you think about it, business outcomes, we begin with the end in mind. What's the impact? What's the benefit to the learner, to their managers, to their team, to the business? And ultimately, what's the value to the shareholder? What's the value that's created? So begin with the end in mind with the business outcomes. Learning objectives are a means to that end. Business objectives is here's where we're going to land. Learning objectives is here's how we're going to get there. My good friend Calwick says learning objectives don't pay the bills, and they don't. But yet learning and development professionals still focus on learning objectives, thinking if we check these off, we've been successful. Well, no, we haven't. It's really the business outcomes that are a true measure of success. With that, how would you define the purpose of learning and development? Yeah, learning and development exists for only one reason, and one reason simply is to help the organization meet its business and strategic goals by providing cost-effective and instructionally effective learning opportunities. Clear, Terrence, and, and I and I love that in our conversations, um, your ability to distill, to distill, and to make it a, a simple and effective. Um, the other thing that I that I've been exploring in these conversations is the connection between learning and development and change management. Are these separate functions? Should they be united? How do you view the relationship between those two? There's a synergy between the two. Uh, For example, one of the reasons why learning fails to succeed is when all is said and done and the training, a lot gets said and really little gets done. I will never sign off on a learning and development initiative if a change management implementation plan is not baked into it. You know, we, we've talked before about learning scrap research from 1990 to the present, originally pioneered by James and Dana Gaines Robinson shows when people go to training programs, typically at their very best, they're only putting about 15% of what they gained in the program back to work in a way that delivers results. That tells me 85% of what was covered in the training goes unused. Some good friends of mine coined the phrase learning scrap. So learning scrap is at 85% or more that was covered that's not applied. And that does nothing but diminish value and actually tarnish the reputation of our efforts in L&D. I've never heard of learning scrap before. You know, and, and I've, I first shared this 10 years ago this week when I was interviewing at Emerson. And I remember sharing this phrase with a person who would then become our chief operating officer. And it was funny because it created a visceral reaction with him. And he he started raising his voice and he said, learning scrap, I've never heard of this. You fix this, you fix this, you fix this now. 
And I said, I can fix this. I just need one thing from you. And he said, what? And I smiled and he said, a job offer. You know, if any company in the world gets an idea of what scrap costs, it's a manufacturing company like Emerson. And, you know, companies that manufacture have zero tolerance for manufacturing scrap. But hitherto, most organizations, even Emerson at that time, never gave any consideration to learning scrap. But it does diminish shareholder value. It is certainly visceral when you talk about uh, learning scrap and you think about all of the waste, all of the investment that is now turn, not turning into action. Um, and, and, and we could have a, a lengthy conversation on just what contributes to learning scrap, but I suggest the biggest contribution to learning scrap is that when people go to these programs, they tend to treat them more like an event rather than a process. And a training event is like a one and done. I'm here. I've checked the box. Aren't I great? When all is said and done, like God said, nothing gets done. But a learning process implies a series of deliberate phases. There's a before the training. There's a during the training. And then there's an after the training. And learning and development professionals normally have focused historically on just what happens during the training and I would argue that we need to spend just as much time on what happens before and after as we do the during. To fully understand the learner's journey and how it maps to the business, to the business objectives, which, which is where, as you know, on this podcast, we talk about what are the business goals for us to have in mind as we're having conversation about the initiatives. And I know, Terrence, you mentioned, you know, kind of great leaders begin with the end in mind. And uh, many mention it, but few have a very specific practice and application of that sentiment. How do you practice it? So I came into a perfect storm at Emerson. We were uh, we were very much a conglomerate, and and you know trying to trying to reduce that footprint, become more of a narrowly focused industrial. And um, so I learned a discipline many years ago from a good mentor called Roy Pollock. And if you want to really define the business outcomes and define the end in mind. You go to the top executives and it's a simple, very disciplined. I've been leading with this ever since. I went to the three top executives who were a part of my advisory team and I said, complete the sentence. This initiative will be a success when? And they lean back and they go, you know, that's a really good question. And they said, our old answer would be, well, when they take the course, but we've learned from you that that's not acceptable. So we sat, we sat down for about 20 minutes. We came up with four specific business outcomes that our revised signature leadership development program would, would, would provide. That was really now our true north. It set the, the, the direction for the course, if you will. It's like the mission statement for the course. It's actually my promise to the business that if they apply these skills, they put it to work back at work. These are four viable, meaningful value creating outcomes that they could expect to have. But then there was one other thing that I would ask them is besides the workshop, what else needs to be in place organizationally to make sure that we get these results? Because truth be told, training by itself will never deliver these results. It's always training plus something else. And that's something that I call organizational readiness. Terrence, when we talk about the, the before, the during and after, You've introduced this idea in my world that's, that's a, a finish line, the concept of a finish line. 
can you walk through through okay so this was the the business mindset of wondering where learning fits within the organizational objectives how do we think about the finish line of learning well it starts at the starting line and if we look at training as a process rather than an event it implies again that there's a before there's a during there's an after and there's some very specific activities that learners and their managers should do even before get they get to the training regardless of the nature of the training, whether it's in-person or virtual or hybrid. Before any learning and development investment, the learners should meet with their manager five to 15 minutes before that, uh, at some point before they attend that program. Here's what they should, get, should discuss. Here's the purpose of the program. Here's why you were selected to attend. Here's how you're going to benefit, in other words, the business outcomes, Here's what you're going to learn. Those are the learning objectives. Here might be solutions to current challenges you're facing that this training will offer. Or based on the content, here are some opportunities you'll be able to capitalize on. And then finally, here's what I'll expect of you when you come back from the training. Because these conversations are almost never had, most learners come to training programs with very little intentionality. I've heard it said over the years, there's three types of people that come to training. There's prisoners, there's vacationers, and there's explorers. The prisoners are those employees, five to 10 to 20 year employees, were wondering why they're at the training. They're wondering why they're at the training, but the reason they're there is they were told to show up. You have the vacationers. These are the ones who love to come to training because they're away from work. They're hoping the workshop is held in a really nice location, like in Florida where you live, and they just want time away. And then you have the explorers who are there to take it and run with it and use it and be successful back at work. Here's what I found. If any manager follows the simple discipline of a pre-workshop briefing with their employees, Here's the workshop, here's where you're going, here's how you're gonna benefit, here's what you're gonna learn, here's what I'm going to expect. I never have prisoners and vacationers show up anymore because the manager has created a mindset of intentionality ahead of time. When we rolled this out at Emerson, I remember in the pilot course, I had an employee come up to me. He said, I've been here 18 years. This is the first workshop I've ever gone to where I've been asked to have some expectations before I came. And I said, you can't be serious. 18 years, countless number of workshops and you've had no expectations? He said, not at all. And he said, they always delivered on that. So I looked at him and said, what are you expecting now? And he said, oh, I'm expecting a lot. So this is a way to begin to frame or set expectations. So that's the before. Here's what happens the, the during. The, the workshops have to found, follow sound instructional design processes. And my philosophy is in any workshop we put on, the learner should be working harder than the instructor. One of the causes for a learning scrap is the learners don't practice and all we do is cram in content. When we talk about the learning curve, the forgetting curve is even st steeper. But here's something interesting. You've gone to training before. Mm -hmm. At the end of a workshop, after they pass out surveys, the instructor walks around the room and passes out something else, a certificate. And what message are we giving to the learners when we pass them out a certificate at the end of the course? You're done. 
No, we're not. Training is an input, but we don't do this for inputs. We do it for outputs. So the most important part of the, the training is what I'll call the implementation phase. So the preparation phase, that's before. The instruction phase, that's the during. The implementation phase, that's after. Learning is most fragile when it's new. So again, the idea is simple. The real work begins when the workshop ends. So in our signature foundational leadership workshop, we have a 12-week implementation plan. First thing the learners do is meet with their manager and go over their implementation plan. And it's not like a list of New Year's resolutions like many of them are. And they have task-specific things that they have to transfer the skills gained back to work. And then finally, we have the achievement phase where 12 weeks later, the learners report back on their implementation successes and challenges. So they get back together in a virtual call and each person has to report back. Here's what I set out to accomplish. Here's what I did accomplish. And here's the impact it's had on me and my team and my business. So what's really cool about this is just 12 weeks later, I'm getting relevant, credible and compelling data that we've achieved the four business outcomes. This is actually how I'm measuring return on expectation. It's not about the inputs, it's about the outputs. It's yeah. entirely about the outputs because if there's no outputs, there's learning scrap. C can you say more about the return on expectations? How do you think about it and how do you discuss it internally? Yeah, I've, I've never really been a believer on return on investment. I think there's just a very limited criteria by, one, by ways that one could successfully measure ROI in a learning and development initiative. But return on expectation is very, very simple. It started with that first meeting where we defined the business outcomes. If they say, complete the sentence, this initiative will be a success when, and then they fill in the blank, we've agreed to it. What they're really saying is, here's what I expect this workshop or this initiative to achieve. So then everything around that whole workshop is built towards getting those expectations. And then... 12 weeks later, the learners are reporting back what they put to work and what happened. We're hearing, well, those expectations are now returning. We've met return on expectation. I remember having a conversation very early on with our chief financial officer, who, by the way, is the executive sponsor of our foundational leadership course. As far as I know, the only CFO of any Fortune 500 company who's put his name behind an L&D initiative. And he said, Terrence, I hope you never approach me with a conversation of return on investment. And I said, I promise you I never will because I really don't believe in it. But return on expectation is easy to deliver on. And typically we're showing ROE within 12 weeks. Terrence, in every conversation, one of the aspects that I'd like to reflect on is the current mindset of the learner, right? Um, whether we think about the attention spans that are reducing, whether we think about stress associated with you know social, economical, you name a dimension of our lives. What are you seeing in terms of the mindset and, and how does that create a context for you and how you, you design the learning journeys? Yeah, great question. I will tell you this, that regardless of how the technology changes, there are some things that are timelessly contemporary. And here's one of them. One of the most valuable bits of advice I learned early on in my 28-year career now in L&D is this. In any training program you put on, 
your learner is constantly making two value judgments that never stop. They may not even be cognizant of it, but unconsciously, there's two value judgments they're constantly asking. The first question they're asking themselves is, what do I think of this? And the second question is, how can I use this? And the longer it takes in the design and in the delivery, the facilitation of that program to address those two value judgments, the more likely it is that the learners will tune out. So it really cuts down to this, the relevance. I've heard it said that the problem with most L&D programs is we're answering the questions nobody's asking. So as a result, we're often talking to ourselves, patting ourselves on the back and saying, look how many people went through the program. So again, what do I think of this and how can I use this? Terrence, you mentioned relevance and you know a good portion of, of our focus is thinking about the future of people initiatives where they're going to be more effective than they are today or dare I say, you know, reach a level of effectiveness that is, that is going to be game changing. And uh, in many ways, being relevant to the learner, perhaps learning from the world of marketing, how do you think about it in terms of where we could go to create more effectiveness in the people initiatives? Yeah, let me tie that answer in with a, a prior question about the difference between business outcomes and learning objectives. You might have heard an old adage in sales training called features tell, benefits sell. If you think about it, the business outcomes of a course are the benefits of training. The learning objectives are the features of a training program. People never buy a product because of its features. They buy it because of its benefits. And so we need to constantly put those benefits of improved performance out in front of the learners and spend less time on the features of it, if that makes sense. So oh. I'd still suggest that these things are timelessly contemporary, regardless of how things are going. But if we can focus on by, by applying these skills and by using these tools and processes, by putting it to work when you're back at work, emphasis on implementation, You'll be more efficient in your role. You'll have more efficacy in your performance. Why wouldn't somebody want to do that? And, and when you think about, you, you mentioned for 12 weeks, what happens beyond? And, and here, I'm, I'm curious, in this future state, do we consider some, some way to continue to remind, to stay top of mind? How do we think about what marketing has done, where they take a brand and, and they continue to send relevant and, and personalized messages in order to stay top of your mind oh yeah i mean my inbox is constantly filled with with things things like that and ai plays a role in it so yeah i i think that there's a couple things that we need to do beyond the implementation phase and that is deploy performance support and that could be some kind of push content that's sent out to the learners it could be a series of questions it could be links to relevant articles you know i've heard an expression a universal principle of physics. I woke up in, in St. Louis, you woke up in Florida, but the minute we both set our foot on the floor this morning, we woke up to the same universal principle, and that is gravity never has a bad day. And so what we need to do constantly is help the learners break free from that gravitational pull of going back and doing things the same old way and then creating learning scrap. So we can leverage technologies through push uh, mechanisms, maybe through pull mechanisms. There's no shortage of it. But again, that additional content still has to be relevant to the skills applied. 
We have to be careful though, because many L&D people fall into prey from what I call the myth of more. That is, well, the more content I can push out to them or cram into the course, the better. That's not necessarily the case at all. Um, I've heard it said in, in, inside every fat training course, there's a skinny one wanting to get out. And I think we need to lean it down and apply principles of lean instructional design so that it's relevant and that there's a strong how-to focus. Um, we can almost turn this episode into a comedy if we, with cert, certain bites there, Terrence. Yeah, and it, um, again, if learning is a means to an end, here's, here's the, the, the question I'll often find. Like when I've come into new roles and I've asked my team, what are people supposed to be able to do as a result of attending this workshop? 100% of the time, what I'll hear is, well, we want them to know this, we want them to know this, we want them to know this. Well, that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking what we want them to know. I'm asking what we want them to do. And again, what we want them to do will define what we want them to know, not the other way around. Understood. So, Terrence, the folks that are listening, our audience, are, are learning and development, change, innovation, HR, operational leaders that are bold, courageous. They dare to think differently and, and ask the questions we're asking now. Their journeys are, are not easy because getting internal alignment, getting executives on board is not easy, as, as you can imagine. You've done it successfully. So let's talk through some of the lessons you've learned, and, and you've mentioned a few already, and advice that you would give them in order to increase their chances of being successful to bring about learning and development that is meaningful to the business and to the learner. Thank you for asking. First, again, I'll suggest that there are timeless rules for great instruction and great performance, regardless of the changes in technology. And uh, I'll start off by sharing a quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes to share with my peers. He said, beware of chronological snobbery. Nothing is of greater value because it's new, nor is it of less value because it's old. Newness is not a virtue. Oldness is not a vice. And a lot of times L&D people are, are quick to, to fall prey to this is something new or this is something new. So it must be good. And this is something old. So it must be bad. We have to make sure we don't fall prey to chronological snobbery. There are some rules that are just timelessly contemporary for great learning and great results. And I think that's what's helped me be very successful in my role. Amazing. And, and what happens when they run into executives that are, you know, call them either naysayers or skeptics. This isn't how we've done it. This is, you know, they're here, they're getting a fair salary and, and great benefits and let's just get them to work harder. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't argue with, with great results, but when we spoke about learning scrap earlier, the research shows time and time again, too, one of the biggest contributors to learning scrap is a lack of a supportive environment. I remember after university, my first job was with the U.S. Department of Labor. I went through a training course. It actually was really pretty good. I was excited about what I learned. I had my boss come into my cubicle and say, forget everything that they told you in training. Here's how I want you to do it. Ironically enough, six months later, she sends me back to refresh her training. <laughs> kind of the adage, everybody understands English if you say it loud enough, right? So, you know, what we want to make sure, too, is, is we need to create 
a great instructional environment. But I think one of the things that also needs to be built into the program, and this speaks to a change initiative, is providing tools and resources for that learner's manager to support the transfer mm. and not get in the way of it. So if I think about it, if there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after, that means there's a before for the learner, their manager, and for L&D. There's a during for the employee, their manager, and L&D. And then there should be an after where there's a before, during, and after. Mary Broad and John Newstrom wrote the uh, the seminal book on this in, in the early 1990s around this called The Transfer Training. Fascinating to include manager as an important participant in this journey because if the manager is not involved, then it becomes the outside of the operational initiative and you fall in this check the box. You know, as your manager said, you know, glad you went to the learning. Uh, let me tell you how it's supposed to be done. Or welcome back from your training. Now get back to work. And we know that just as there's a learning curve, there's a forgetting curve. And the longer the span between the learning and the doing, the less likely that anything's going to happen. Wonderful. Well, Terrence, there were lots of bits here. I'm so grateful that you took the time to join the podcast. Just thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Over and out.